Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. The podcast explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Helen Winter, who has founded a fantastic organization in Germany and who is currently doing a fellowship with the Harvard Program on a Negotiation. So welcome, Helen. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very glad to have you here as well, especially as it turns out you're on holiday at the moment in Italy. And here I am asking you about work. Very rude of me. I'm going <laughs> to owe you some cookies, I think. It's all right. I make time for you. Thanks. <laughs> oh, my God. Best start to a podcast ever. All right. <laughs> so, so let's get the talking about work stuff out of the way so you can get back to your holiday and hopefully doing some relaxing. So tell me about this organization that you founded in Germany, because I understand that you're helping refugees with mediation skills. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we founded an organization about five years ago based in Germany. It's called Resolute and Resolute empowers refugees and also locals with conflict competency skills Mm -hmm. and also peer mediation skills. So that means that participants get to learn about mediation, get to learn some mediation skills, and then hopefully mediate among themselves about conflicts that may arise in a refugee shelter setting, but also with the neighborhood, with the surrounding neighborhoods of refugee shelters based in Germany. Yeah. Fantastic. And does that mean it's throughout Germany? Because you've just said shelters in Germany, plural. So how extensive is this? Yeah, so that means we started off in Berlin and now we are also Mm -hmm. active in Hannover and Lower Saxony and Brandenburg. So it's, it's getting a little bit more extensive. And also during COVID, we started working more internationally and more digitally. So that means we also did some online workshops across the globe, so to speak, to reach more people. Yeah. And uh, it's been quite a journey because we founded this in 2016 when the refugee crisis or so-called refugee crisis Uh arose. And I was actually studying at Pepperdine during my master's there, my Uh LLM in dispute resolution when it happened. And I was thinking, how can I apply some of the tools that we learn here to the actual crisis based in Germany? And what can I do to help? And so this whole idea evolved during that time while I was still studying. And then I was doing a traineeship at the United Nations and I talked to a colleague about this idea of implementing peer mediation mechanisms in refugee shelters because a lot of people, there was a huge influx of refugees coming into Germany. I think it was 1.2 million people and there was a lot of need and administration failed on a lot of levels because a lot of people came at the same time. And some of the people that came in 2016 are still living in refugee shelters and that is uh, yeah, it's a, it's not a great state, of course. And now we have, with the Ukraine war, we have more refugees coming. I think another million people came to Germany. So mm-hmm. while I was studying, I was thinking, I looked at a project from, I think, Ms. Kaufer, and she's doing peer mediation in prisons based in California. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, this is great. And how can we use some of these tools and apply them to, to the setting for people to learn some of these skills and be empowered to do it themselves, to solve conflict themselves? rather than having mediators come in from the outside that might not have any ideas about cultural norms or difficult conversations among different cultures and why not have people do it themselves. That's how it started, essentially. Yeah. That's incredible. And so when you were starting up, did you just turn up to a refugee shelter one day and say, hey guys, I'm here to teach you how to mediate? What was the situation? 
That's a good question because that's actually how we did it. And it was pretty naive of <laughs> us. So first we went, so so first we went into we had language cafes at that time in Germany. And, and I think they're still active where people can come and do offer language courses, German courses to others. And we went there and we just asked, would there be a need? Would you be interested in learning about conflict resolution? And people said, yeah, it would be so interesting to do that. And that's how it started. And then we went into one of the shelters and pretty naively just sat there with a booth and trying to advertise our project. And nobody really was interested. And we were like, okay, how is this ever going to work? Because people were, it's a frustrating scene. You must imagine it's a cramped space. Many people yeah. live together and coming from different ethnic groups, coming from different religions. So it's a conflict prone environment in the first place. Mm. And it's sometimes located in the far outskirts of the cities. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people are around. And those that are around, unfortunately, sometimes have a problem with refugee shelters mm. um, being there in the first place. So it's quite a quite trist environment. And we just sat there and inviting people to join. And they were like, who are you? What do you want? So <laughs> and we were like, we do, we want to give workshops here and see how it goes. And they were like, no. And so we understood, okay, that's not gonna, how it works. And, and that's how we understood we have. So there's two things that we learned. One thing was we need refugees in our team. We want people who mm -hmm. are interested in conflict resolution, who are interested in mediation, who are taking responsibility for community members intrinsically and have mm -hmm. them in our team. And then the other thing is we have to talk to the shelter's management and get them on board and them about what is mediation, does it work and things like that. And there, there are managers who are happy about this, learning about new things. And there are others that say, what is this? So it was quite challenging. <laughs> it wasn't easy at all from the start. And then slowly but surely we developed a method that started to work and um and, and it was only possible because of having a team that you know is enthusiastic about the work we do and having people on board that care about the people because that's essentially what it is about it's about the people it's about understanding their situation and i always say because i also gave trainings i always say i have not had to flee my home country i have no idea mm -hmm. what it's like and I cannot imagine what you've been through. And, but I'm here to give you some of the tools of mediation because this is something I'm familiar with. And my colleague, for example, my co-trainer, Mohammed here, he knows what it's like. And he has been there. Now he's moved out of the shelter. Now he's studying politics or whatnot. And so this is the message we want to build because we have to build trust in the beginning of a workshop with the participants. Otherwise they don't come back. And also because we want to be transparent about what we do. And so that, but that, that, that's a good question because in the beginning we were just sitting there and nobody showed up. And then I have a lot, lots of stories where people, where we would say, okay, the workshop starts at 10 a.m. and then people showed up at 11 <laughs> and these are yeah. things that you just get used to and then if you say the workshop starts at 10 the workshop will really start later it's fine it's okay mm -hmm. we'll just prepare we'll do no we'll just be hanging around and if people like the workshop they come back and they bring others and that's how it works yeah yeah but it was a and lot of try and error yeah it sounds I love this vision of you just sitting in a booth at a refugee shelter being like mediation's really cool guys Yes, I would like with my flyers. But you need the people in the inside of the refugee shelter. You need social workers that are trusted. You need the management to be on board because they really showed to the participants and to the residents of the shelter, they show them, okay, you can trust these guys. And then when they see us showing up again and again every day, 
they understand, okay, these, they are really serious about this. They are not leaving us again because a lot of people, as you know, also from some of your research, probably they are highly traumatized. The 50% of the population yeah. is traumatized and it's somehow like a second trauma for people to be placed into a camp and they think it's temporary. There's no perspective. They are not allowed to work. They want to do something. So they, a lot of the, them just want to do something. And they're so happy about a training where they can become peer mediators because they think, okay, wow, now I have something to do. Now I have, I have a task, I have a purpose. And this is really what it is about for people to rebuild their lives in a way where it's of course difficult and everything starts from scratch and you don't know, they don't know if they can go back home, if they have to stay in Germany. And so for them to get some tools to strengthen their also self-efficacy, I think is so paramount. And this is also why we do this work and why we have this approach it's like a bottom-up approach rather than top-down we say okay this is not how you would envision a typical mediation course in the beginning we were very academic about this and we had our everything written down the entire training program and we were like okay this is this is what we know this is how it was at Pepperdine this is how it was another team member was at Columbia this is how it was at Columbia this is what at, how it was at Charity Med Medical School and then we came and we understood okay it's, it's completely we don't need that it's a It's something that from our academic mindset doesn't work in this field because you have many challenges like language barriers, like different cultures and traumatized individuals. And it's so hard to bring everybody on board. And the key was really to simplify it in a way that it would become a, yeah, a, an approach where people try and it's highly interactive and it's a role play based approach like It is, of course, also in other courses, but this one is based on conflicts that occur in a refugee setting, in a refugee shelter, mm -hmm. and they are developed with our refugee colleagues and also with the participants. They develop the conflicts themselves. And they said, for example, one day we brought a role play to the group and they said, can we just do our own conflict? And then this is something we would do. We'd say, yes, of course, because this, if this is adding value to you and you want to discuss the conflict that's going on right now, then who are we to say no to this, of course. And that's approach to, to have people also bring in what they know about mediation and have them add to the conversation and to the training. For example, a lot of people from Syria know about elder dispute resolution. And so they are somewhat familiar with the concept of dispute resolution. And that's something that's so valuable. And we will be the last people to say, no, don't use that because we are so happy that they're interested and that they want to learn this and that they are showing up because it's so hard to get motivated when you have a situation like this in your life and could possibly not imagine what it's like so we're really thankful about that when people come and when they're interested in the training yeah it sounds brilliant and I love what you just stressed here as well about the bottom-up approach and really tailoring it because I think that could sometimes get lost in the noise when we think about mediation trainings and that sort of corporate style of, of training like it's not necessarily the thing that's going to work with refugees in these particular contexts. Exactly. And I find it really interesting as well how you mentioned the role of elder mediation in Syria because, of course, there's lots of different heritages of mediation and dispute resolution around the world. Have you yeah. seen any other tools or particular styles that have actually popped up and you're like, oh, this is actually really interesting? Oh, yes, that's something that's so interesting because uh, we have had many situations where we were surprised what works. For example, later we set up a mediation clinic and the peer mediators get to work in this clinic. And we had one peer mediator who was mediating between 
two families and it was about the children always fighting, but it had gotten to a point that the parents were not talking to each other anymore and were also fighting about, oh, you don't know how to educate your children in that manner. Yeah, (laughs) fun. And so it was quite a tough conflict and he was invited to one of their rooms. It's not an apartment, it's a room. And he was there to talk to them about this conflict. And he told us about how it went and it went on for hours and hours. So he was talking to these two families for hours and hours and they weren't able to come to a solution. They didn't want to deal with the the conflict anymore. And then eventually he told me, okay, so what I did, Helen, was I just refused any food that was offered to me and any drink, tea, I refused everything. I just said, okay, you know what, guys, if I'm, if you're not going to work with me here, I'm not going to what you offer me as your guest. So as the mediator being the authority person in the room, the parties had were faced with this affront of a guest not accepting what they prepared for him. And so they tried to find ways to be more, at least collaborative to come to an agreement. So it's funny because how these traditional norms, like having dinner, or not accepting tea, how that works. So that was one thing I found very interesting. It's always about things like that also, like trying to find, to create value through through friendship, through in, inviting people. We had another case, it was with three women from Angola and they came, they actually came to an agreement, but then they said, we don't want to place the responsibility on the peer mediator because we think that if we agree to this agreement, the peer mediator has all this responsibility. And what if we don't stick to it? So we, because they didn't want to make a written agreement. And I was like, okay, you don't have to make a written agreement. It's a very Western approach to come up with yeah, yeah. an agreement. What are other things you can think about? And then they said, how about we just swear by the Bible that we will stick to this agreement so we can load the responsibility up on God? And I was like, love that. <laughs> I love it. It's actually <laughs> You can do that, of course. And it's things like these where I know probably others would say, why is this mediation? Can we still call this mediation? But I think it, it is the only way for people to really, you know, to be able to design the process themselves and to allow for this sort of flexibility that works. Because in the end of the day, nobody is helped if we say, okay, it has to be a written agreement. You have to do phase one to five if you don't do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Mediation. But that's not our approach. So this is hopefully touching up on your question on how it's different. No, it's great. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I love these examples that you've just given. And so if I may ask, can you tell me about the funding model for your organization? Do you do all of this work for free? No. So yeah, in the beginning, we have done this work for free, but then we realized it's not sustainable because we have trainers and team grew and we want them to also be compensated for their work because they're mediators, they're psychologists, and also our refugee co-mediators who are trained by us. They also want to get something for their work. And we started off by pretty entrepreneurial. We applied for, for grant. It was like a competition, a social entrepreneurship competition based in Germany. And we got our first funding and it was like, I think it was 40,000 euros and we could do a lot with that in the beginning after the pilot phase. And we were super, super lucky to receive that funding because it was a competition, I think with 500 social startups. And that's how we were able to 
hit the ground running, so to speak. And, and from then on, we were able to work on a finance model. And since this was something that, that the team, none of us had done before, was super unsure if I should found an organization. I wouldn't have done this without someone else in the team who told me, I've studied business. I can help you. We can do a market analysis. Is there anybody else out there who does this? We need to think about a finance model. So these were all really important pillars in the beginning of how we came about. But then with that, we were able to apply for certain grants and fundings on a project basis. And that's how mm -hmm. our finance model works. And some of them are by the government, others are by private companies. So it's, but it's still always difficult because in any organization, especially a social organization, NGO, the funding is always the tricky part because everyone wants to do so much great work. Yeah. And there's only so little money, especially with crises going on, with money going elsewhere now. And that's, of course, true. And then also as an organization, when you're just founded and you're a baby organization, nobody tr trusts you because you have to prove yeah. yourself being around for a while. So I think the first governmental funding we only got after three years or so. Wow. Because, because yeah. Germany and also especially Berlin. Yeah. They are quiet, they know the key players, and they are those mm -hmm. bigger organizations that always apply for the grants. And then who's resolute? So it was, yeah. and then, but then also there were ways to do it, especially working with other organizations that had already been established also through governmental funding, partnering up with them. And then knowing that one organization, for example, their scope was neighboring activities between refugees and neighbors, and they organized something like cooking events or soccer events and things like that, which are all great. And from starting from there, we were able to build something together and to work with them together in a way that we said, it's great that you do these activities. And I'm sure people will be able to connect through that. And how about having a structured dialogue talking about difficult topics such as why does somebody sit away from me on the bus when I'm taking the bus or why do Germans always why are they always bureaucratic in what they do <laughs> we're talking about these things so how we start our trainings actually I forgot to mention that we do a story sharing where we talk about all these topics and where in a forum of trust we address some of these sensitive issues that some people would not address in their well, ever in their life, because they would be too afraid to ask things like that. Or why are you wearing a burqa, for example? So in these structured conversations, people get to ask about it, and also people share their stories and also stories of hardship, how they came to Germany, what happened during the flight, people they've lost. And so for the first time, by sharing these stories, they have 20 people listening to them. And mm -hmm. there, there's been studies that already prove that this is the first step of healing your trauma. It's the first thera therapeutic step if you have others acknowledge what happened to you, if you have others acknowledge the trauma you've suffered, and it's, it can be very powerful if someone tells a story about, for example, being discriminated at the job center, being a refugee or not speaking the language, and then having others say, oh, this happened to me too, or relating to that. And so that's how we usually try to start our trainings, just because we want to get those conversations, we want to address them. And we want to build trust through addressing them. It's sometimes, it's not easy. And we also work, of course, with interpreters who are, sometimes they are the same person as the co-facilitators who, who also have a background in, um, yeah, who are a refugee. And so they also translate because a lot of these conversations are tricky and, and not everything is understood. Our workshops are in German, very basic, easy 
language, but we need to have some of that translated for sure so that everybody understands. And it's, yeah, it's quite difficult sometimes to moderate these sessions and you need many, you need a great team to many trainers to be around and also psychologists to be around because some of these things can be triggering and our, it's not our goal to, to do therapy. That's what mm -hmm. we also say, because we have a, an element in our trainings that's called mental health awareness. And actually, my brother, I, I don't know if you knew that, he's also in our team. So mm -hmm. he's a medical doctor, and he brought this element of mental health awareness to the curriculum because we found trauma to be one of the key reasons for conflict, for people to avoid conflict or stay away from conflict or getting in conflict. And, and there are not a lot of programs out there that raise awareness on mental health. And it's very stigmatized in some of these different cultures. And, and for example, people from Afghanistan told me in our uh, um, country, if you go to a therapist, you're considered as crazy and nobody would ever do mm -hmm. that. And so we try to, like, it's a very low threshold. We try to just say, hey, this is something that can be treated. This is something biological. This is nothing to be ashamed of. And then others hopefully share in and say, yes, I'm doing therapy now and it's helping me. And so this is the sort of first step for people to become aware of that. And then we work with partner organizations that are then specifically there for treating the trauma adequately, not what we do. We just raise awareness on it. And it's within the conflict resolution and the peer mediation training, like a, like a red thread is yeah. in the curriculum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if I should just maybe wonder something, when you're working with refugees and they're all sharing these stories and these traumas, what have you, are we talking about refugees from different countries all coming together in the same group and discussing these shared experiences? Is that how the yeah. workshops are structured? Yes, that's how it's structured. And it changed many times because in the beginning, we had only, we allowed only two language groups, say people speaking Far or Dari or Pashto and Arab. Uh, and we said, so people from Syria or Afghanistan. And then we said that we can handle because we have two translations at the same time. And sometimes we could separate the group, which we did many times because it's very disturbing and noisy and there are children running around. People are frustrated if they always have to wait for the other translation. And, but that somehow worked, but then you can't plan who's coming to the training. We try to collaborate as closely as possible with the shelters management and the social workers, but, and they have a list and they write everything down and we say, okay, these are the people, but then others might show up. And then yeah. it's, you can't know in the beginning of the workshop, how many language groups will be there, how many languages will be present. And so eventually we had even a workshop and it was just a, it was a workshop just for women and women's shelter. And we had so many different languages groups and that they all wanted to participate that we said, okay, you know, we have to be flexible now. We will just work also with some of the social workers present in the shelter that might be able to translate. We will integrate them. So we can't be not going to exclude people from mm. the workshop. And yes, we only brought these two translators, uh, but yeah, this is, we're going to deal with this now. So it's, this is the trickiest part, I think, because you can't plan that well. It's not, as you mentioned, in the corporate world where you know exactly who's going to be there. You have their CVs uh -huh. and then you training. It's really, okay, you have, who's going to be there, but then it's going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. But it no, always, it always works. It somehow works. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Because I think it really reflects that you've internalized the flexibility of mediation in terms of the approach you're taking to these shelters and bringing groups together. So massive kudos on that. And so I now want to ask, because obviously you're doing, you're finishing your PhD right now. And I understand okay. there's a connection between your research 
and Resolute. So what is yeah. the connection? What are you working on? Yeah, when I started Resolute, I was thinking we have to do impact measurement anyways, and we have to understand how it works and how it can work. And so I started thinking about doing a PhD after I've started working in the organization and I was already, I was still employed at a university actually. And then I talked to a professor about this idea and she said, that's a great idea. Uh, if you want to just link it. And I was thinking, yeah, that, that could be cool. And yeah. so the research is essentially how a peer mediation training and setting up a peer mediation clinic can be adapted in a way that it works and also conceptualized in a way that it works sustainably working with so many different parties and participants and different cultures. And it's a highly qualitative research project. So it's qualitative mm -hmm. analysis based on the ground theory methodology taken from the social sciences. And, and I, my background is in law. So for me, this was all new. How do I do interviews? How do I do field observations? How do I apply this methodology? And so I had to really dig into that and understand how to compose such a research project while at the same time being a facilitator in the field and, and, lo and loving the experience. That's how it came about. And I've done many of these trainings. I've observed, I've done group interviews, things like that. And essentially what I always saw, what the pattern was, because with ground theory is that you collect data and then it's a method that throughout the data that you analyze a theory emerges. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's a yeah. very... It's just inductive logic, basically. Yes, absolutely. So figure out the theory based on what... Yes, and then my PhD went into the direction of understanding what actually motivates people to, to do something like this. And mm -hmm. how can we all work together to do this and to make it work? And the theme, the overarching theme was actually that people are striving, participants are striving for self-efficacy and this training fosters their self-efficacy because the ones that are doing it and then becoming peer mediators are also the ones, interestingly, that are moving out of the shelter and that are finding an apartment and that are finding a job and that are going back into the shelter doing the mediations. And I think it's because human beings intrinsically and it's, it's proven if we look at Viktor Frankl studies that are done there in the concentration camp that people want a purpose in their life it can be through work it can be through love or it can even be found in suffering and mm -hmm. I think that our participants they find a purpose in having something to do first of all I'm not saying it can only be peer mediation I think it of can course. be Many, many it's different the only answer it's actually the purpose of life exactly and, but then having this other theme of charity promoting charity and being there for others helping others in the in the refugee shelter having residents come to you asking you about their conflict helping them it it is very gratifying and this experience fosters this motivation and this purpose and brings people back to life wanting to reclaim their lives in a way it, so, it sounds so dramatic i don't want to make it sound that dramatic but Dude, it is dramatic yeah. Yeah. And this is what I found and what the theme was really. Mm -hmm. I found that so interesting because I first thought, well, maybe they join because they want to gain power because you could also look at it in a negative mm -hmm. way. Okay. Why do people mm -hmm. want to become a peer mediator in mm -hmm. a community? Oh, maybe they want to be more powerful. Maybe they want to be the spokesperson, but it's not that. It's really taking responsibility for the community, having a purpose, being there for others, helping others out in difficult situations. So I really saw a link between actually ADR and self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of something that I want to look into further also uh, beyond my PhD, because I think it can be a, an empowering tool in any setting. 
for people if it's a dialogue work or if it's a story sharing to connect with these tools of ADR and to also then get back on track and you know yeah take on some of that self-determination back into your life so yeah yeah and so has there been anything in your research that really surprised you or confused you (laughs) you're looking at going what's happening here there were many many surprising things in my research just because I was wondering how can that be the outcome because I was thinking I'm looking at a program I'm changing it I'm adapting it it's something it's such a strange surprising outcome to say give the power to the people have them say and in the program how are the role plays going to look like how is it going to be structured and basically have the participants create the programs themselves have the participants create the process of mediation themselves in a way that of course we guide and we give guidance and so on but it's not um, that we say, okay, this is how it's going to be. And then this is going how it's going to work. And I think it was, now it's looking back, it's not surprising anymore, but back <laughs> then it was so surprising. But now it's like one of these things that totally makes sense. And you think such an easy idea. How can it, how can it be somehow not like that? But it, yeah, yeah. But looking back, it's not surprising. But in that moment, I was thinking, okay, that's, yeah, but it isn't surprising because you want them to take away something and to, we had participants, they, they share what's happening in their lives. For example, one woman, a woman, she was from Afghanistan and she had a, a dispute with her brother who was still in Afghanistan. And it was quite hard because she said, he thinks now that I'm in Germany, basically money is growing on trees. <laughs> I can send back money every week and there's yeah. nothing here. And I'm in this yeah. shelter and I cannot work and I haven't learned how to read or write. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful that I can now learn something here and I don't need to read role plays. I get their instructions verbally. I'm learning something that was, in me already that I had the nature of being a peace but I had the emotional intelligence or capacity whatever you want to name it empathy and now I'm in the workshop and I can hopefully take something of that away and, and apply it to my own life and talk to my brother again and then we played out this conflict between her and her brother and she wanted to be the brother and she said it's so eye-opening to me that he doesn't know what it's like here and putting myself in his position. And so those were the kind of surprising moments for me that looking back aren't surprising, but in that moment, you're like, wow, that's true. That That is so fascinating. And yes, a lot of women from Afghanistan probably have never been in a workshop before, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. it also takes a lot of courage to say, okay, I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And that was actually also funny. I think this idea between gender imbalance, right? that you would think it's always men who show up and it's it also depends on the culture so for example we had a workshop and it was just Syrian men and none of them brought their wives and Afghan women and they brought some of them brought their husbands so it was really funny and then the Syrian men said how come you are allowed to be here and then they said just bring your wives you will see it's going to be fine they said no we it's maybe if there was a workshop just for them and then at the end of the training, the Afghan women were making fun of the Syrians and said, did something happen? Or did something happen between <laughs> us that we, that we should not be in this room together? Because that was their fear that something yeah, happened. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, you're right. No, but still. Yeah. And also that was surprising to me because I would also think, yeah, with Afghan women, you would not think that they are this progressive. But in some ways, it's always a surprise. You can never prepare because, yeah, I'm also very unfamiliar 
with uh, with the cultures and I'm learning it by mm -hmm. doing work and I'm so happy mm -hmm. to have a colleague next to me that can also sometimes culturally translate what I'm saying especially when you have elderly men from for example there was one elderly man also from I think North Syria and he was a teacher and he from the beginning didn't like that we were all young <laughs> and some of us were female and he was yeah. saying I mean he, he was just being very difficult throughout the entire training mm -hmm. and there was a sort of an evolution in his mindset and you could really see it that only to the very end he started respecting us and then he became one of the most active people promoting it mm -hmm. promoting mediation to the residents and there was a summer event and there was a little booth and then he was the one saying you should try peer mediation I got there and then ask a ask him a question of the other residents and uh, he said oh I don't know the answer to this one you should ask the boss and he pointed <laughs> at me and I was like wow just transition <laughs> before you didn't respect me at all as a yeah. woman and that's and these are really cool moments that are surprising and that are it's a it's an evolution and it's not we don't say we're going to change a mindset this is just something it's given and we work with what's there and sometimes it can't you can feel you feel a little bit lost but then you get back on track and then these are the funny moments where then in the eventually he started respecting us as a team <laughs> okay. so it's great when your fiercest critics become your fiercest allies or advocates right it's yeah. definitely got something right here fantastic like golden timing <laughs> And yeah. so I think that a number of people listening to this are going to be wondering, you've mentioned that you've got colleagues, you've got partners, are you looking for more partners? Or if people want to do work, what you're doing in their respective countries, there's a refugee camp, like a block from where I live, can they reach out to you? Or are you looking yes. for partners? I, absolutely I would love to hear from them and mm -hmm. they can feel everyone can feel free to reach out to me and it's always great to to find people who are motivated to want to do that mm -hmm. to want to maybe get some ideas on what to do what not to do especially the process and and in terms of partners we are always super happy to collaborate and yeah that so we're very open and I'm sure we can post somewhere my email in the description and then mm -hmm. happy to talk yes amazing that sounds great and yeah so we'll grab your email and is there any other way that you can be reached where do people find you Helen how can they find you I am very available email is the best way to find me, I'm right now, of course, finishing up my PhD, so I'll be a little bit down under. And thankfully to a really great colleague of mine, operations go on very well on the ground. And, and without her, it would be impossible for me to write my, to focus on my thesis right now. Also, if you go on our website and you write directly to us, there's a little message button and then it will reach any of us and we're happy to have a conversation. And yes, I'm super super open for that great and what's the website address for resolute it's resolute but instead of the e it's a three but like Perfect. the number three yeah and so it's a bit confusing but we thought it's cool when we found the organization <laughs> our motto was respect relate resolve so it's r3 those three that's great three. that's good plus yeah you get some cred from the 90s hackers using the three as an e right that's your real audience here 
Well, look, thank you so much for joining me here today, Helen. It's really been inspiring and interesting and a pleasure to have you on. So thank you. And I feel like we will for sure keep our correspondence. And for everyone else, looking, this is your host, Laura May, looking forward to you joining us next time for the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com dot com.